Welcome to a mathematical basis for reality. Bruce, I think you should tell them that Physical Truth is a book on mathematics and philosophy, and that it's a good story. Hello, greetings. Um, it's been a while through this path, and I really want to say how much I appreciate the people who have hung in there and have gone all the way through and read this much more than I thought there would be uh, and I've received some comments on it that they just love the math I thought the mathematics would be fairly rough both Roxy and I were talking about I don't know there's a lot of a lot of math in here but it seems that if it's presented in the right way and so forth people really actually enjoy the mathematics and how it's put together which I think is a wonderful thing I didn't know that usually Mathematicians work in the dark all alone. Well, maybe we light a candle because that way you can see what you're writing. And um, not having any belief that anyone would actually appreciate some of the stuff that you're doing. Mathematics is a very strange art form. It's an art form because you have to deal with reality. You have to be able to express reality, which art does. Even fiction expresses some form of reality. And art, as abstract as you may see it, uh, definitely portrays reality in some way and our perception of it and our reactions to the universe around us and what is happening, our emotions. And we're trying to communicate things to others. We're trying to communicate our thoughts and ideas uh, in some structure, some... Uh, it's kind of, it's like a, like a sculpture, I guess. It's like some four-dimensional painting, maybe more dimensions than that. Once we start to get into things like eigenvalues that create whole worlds of dimensions of ortho of n-dimensional orthogonal uh, relationships, n-dimensional orthogonal uh, um, coordinate systems, and vast numbers of them. Uh, we look at the order of things and other and and so on. So this is all within the world of mathematics, and it seems like there is uh, very much an interest in this to be able to try and either comprehend it or just enjoy it, just to sit back, take a look at it, and and enjoy the beauty that is there. This is a path to discuss reality from a mathematical point of view. And I'm discussing reality and talking about a philosophy. And yes, we get to the philosophy and what the philosophy means. When we understand that our relationship with the universe around us is very, very real. It is actually happening. This is not just something that we are imagining or something that's a result of our perception. Uh, our perceptions are important, not discounting that, but we don't base our reality on our perceptions. We base reality on reality. There are consequences to what we do, and those consequences are real. They affect others, and these other people are real. They're not just a part of our imagination. Everything is real that we have around us. Even our thoughts are real, which is a concept that I think is... Uh, uh, I I think that maybe or maybe not means more expression. I guess our thoughts are real. Sort of a interesting idea. Is I just sort of get that idea coming across to me because 
Mathematics is a mapping of our thoughts. It's sort of a map of, of our thought processes in a very structured and formal way. Sometimes not that formal, if someone's seen my math. Anyway, uh, as we uh, look at our ideas and we try and portray our ideas and straighten them out and sort of spread them out on a map, if you like, and we're going from here to there and this builds up over there and so forth, these are our ideas. But do these ideas and thought processes come from that which is real? Are our thoughts, our dreams, actually a form of reality within some sort of inner space? I've always thought they are. I thought that they they are, but not in the same way as physical reality. And something may actually be going on in the space between the atoms or the space between the electron and the proton, for example. What's going on in that space there? There are certain types of theories with quantum gravity. Let's say the whole thing's there is no empty space. It's all filled up with stuff. I tend to disagree because I think there is an actual empty space and that empty space is a continuum and we use continuum mathematics when we are looking at empty space. We take a look at particles. Particles are entirely different things. I think there are not in empty space made up of empty space. Take the coordinate system, we tie the coordinate system up into a knot and I like this idea very, very, very much because the math works. And it works that we can take a look at things like string theory, not super string theory, but string theory, which I think we have vastly overlooked. And I think there's a lot of things going for string theory. I think super string theory has bit the dust long ago. Quantum gravity, uh, it's going to need some major readjustments. Uh, again, I think it has to adjust back to reality. And they've simplified the math so much that it needs to be really hammered out. And the math for that stuff is not simple. It is not simple, and it is certainly not beautiful. It is ugly, ugly math, because you have um, anti-symmetries, and, uh, symmetries, rather. You, it's not symmetrical. It's way off, off symmetry, and there's a lot of work to be done there. But in looking at that, that brings us into the nonlinear area of mathematics, uh, which is a complete quagmire and uh, madness reigns there. But it's also what describes nature. Nature is nonlinear. Mathematics is linear. We study all these linear equations and so forth. That's usually our bread and butter is mathematicians. We try and get everything to be linear, but nature is nonlinear. And we have to deal with those nonlinearities to be able to get a better understanding, particularly at this stage of the game. We're now no longer in the 1800s or the 1700s looking at trying to look at classical dynamics and how things work or even trying to find some simple model for quantum mechanics. It's reality. It's not simple. And there may be certain principles and so forth that are straightforward. We look for those. And they may be remarkably simple, but the consequences of those principles can be amazingly complex. I don't know. Our thoughts are real. Yeah, I think so. I think our thoughts are real because they manifest in reality in some way or they affect our behavior, I guess, in some way. It's kind of like saying, but it's not real because what's real is real. So like there's a difference and it reminds me of course i mean as we all 
are reminded of imaginary numbers. But are imaginary numbers real? Well, yes, they are real. We use them. Matter of fact, uh, electricians, people, um, sparkies who run wire into your house and you know, hook up the electricity and so forth, use imaginary numbers constantly, all the time. They're very, very uh, actual, real, whatever, but we have real numbers and imaginary numbers, and real numbers are real numbers. They're definitely not imaginary. Imaginary numbers are not real numbers. They're imaginary numbers. Complex numbers are real uh, or actual. So I think there's a real misnomer in real numbers versus imaginary numbers, which I think mathematicians have been saying ever since it was Ramon who uh, discovered imaginary numbers. Uh, I think Ramon discovered imaginary numbers in a lecture somewhere. He put it on the board and so on, came it up, and there was this idea. So he came up with this idea of imaginary numbers and started playing with it. I believe it was Ramon sometime in the 1800s. Uh, but our imaginary numbers, can we sort of take a look? Oh, I guess we could mathematically model our thoughts and reality or our perception and reality through the complex plane with uh, you know, our thoughts being somehow in the imaginary side and the real side being, you know, consequences, behavior, input. Also, hmm, interesting thing there. I've actually taken a look at a brick hitting a black hole and how does it impact or leave an impression on the surface of the black hole. The I'm assuming or I, I know that space-time itself is in some way harmonic or else it couldn't carry waves of any type, electromagnetic waves or gravity waves or any other sort of wave. So there are vibrations, which means the medium through which these waves travel are harmonic. Light waves travel forever, so do gravity waves. Therefore, this is a way of imprinting, well, actually, what I, what I call psi. I've, I've done a lot of talk on what psi is. Psi is what I call a potential of existence or potential. Another way of looking at psi is it's the stuff. We have a ruler. We take the ruler and we bend it. Well, if you've got a bent ruler, it's not going to give you the same measure as a straight ruler. Uh, forget about what straight is or bent is. Or anything. Well, it's a bent ruler. The ruler's bent. And it gives you a different measure of a distance than if the ruler was straight. And within the ruler itself, if it's a wooden ruler, there's going to be tension, stresses, strains, and so forth on the material out of which the ruler is made. If it's a wooden ruler, let's say you don't break it, you bend the thing, let's say a meter stick. It's the stresses and strains within the ruler that are produced by bending it and thereby changes the measure of whatever length you're trying to measure. The ruler is made of, let's say, wood in this case. If we look at space-time and we're using space-time itself for a ruler, what's the ruler made of? I've said it's made of psi. And now as I come around to approach this very interesting and incredibly difficult problem, 
known as the information paradox, where information must somehow be conserved. We throw a brick into a black hole. Somehow, the fact that it was a brick or a, and not a block of ice cream, for example, should be somehow imprinted somewhere or stored somewhere. And I believe it's stored on the surface of the black hole itself because the surface of the black hole is a harmonic medium and is capable of carrying waves, but it cannot carry waves outwardly in the radial direction or inwardly towards the further interior. We completely ignore or, or discount anything that has crossed the event horizon. We can only look at the event horizon itself. We can look at approaching the event horizon, and that is all. And once it hits the event horizon, we're stuck there, at least for now. And this imprint of the fact that a brick hit the thing and then disappears forever is not preserved in the radial direction. It's preserved on the surface of the event horizon itself, which means that it's within the coordinates, what we call theta and phi, if we're using spherical coordinates. And what I have to do now is, as I've said before, find the harmonic equation and spherical coordinates. And I've been turning my brain inside out and scraping it for a while, trying to figure out what exactly that all means. So we have this psi stuff, which is really just stuff. It's the stuff of space-time. It's a mathematical concept and nothing more. It's the only way we can approach this. So it's not theta in psi and r in these coordinate systems that are actually moving. It's the stuff that's moving. And if we draw a coordinate system on this stuff and then we wibble the stuff, the lines of the coordinate system will appear to move, but in reality they don't. They stay the same, the stuff's moving, but we want to be able to see the stuff. So what I'm doing is I'm drawing lines on wobbly stuff and watching how the lines move. And that's, that's how I'm approaching it. Once I do that, okay, so we have this imprint is on the surface. And then we spin it. And it keeps spinning faster and faster eventually. So this black hole would be spinning so fast that the equator of the black hole, space-time, is moving at the speed of light. Now, when that happens, we've got some very interesting thermodynamic properties in that the black hole, the surface of the black hole, reaches absolute zero. And now some very interesting things can happen. All of this saved up, let's call it curvature, because it's it's not straight anymore. The rulers, all the bends on the rulers, if you like, all the so forth, are forced to the poles. And at the poles, there is a great deal of, of um, let's call it stresses, strains, shears, that compact all of this curvature. And this curvature then um, is released through quantum fluctuations to become particles or jets of material shooting off from the poles of the 
very fast-spinning black hole and consists of various different things, gamma rays, for example, cosmic radiation, particles such as protons and antiprotons, um, electrons and neutrinos and Lord knows what, um, that are, are shooting off, but it is in basic fundamental material and particles that are mostly hydrogen, about 15% helium. And it's strange that it, it takes, as soon as I saw this, uh, you know, th this is expanded up, uh, reaches, you know, a, a great height, about almost the radius of the galaxy itself, or maybe beyond that, man, a couple of galactic radii out, and then folds back onto the galaxy to, to replenish it, create more stars, and, uh, falls all over these dwarf galaxies and allows more new more stellar formation to happen there than what's expected. And things sort of start over again. That The galaxy is rejuvenating itself and it may completely compact into itself and then form uh, expanding from the center different spiral arms but at 90 degrees from where they were and they maintain some sort of angular momentum in some way and the galaxy is reborn at 90 degrees from where it was, or on a different plane from where it was. And this continues forever. i looking at galaxies and studying them. Galaxies live forever. Galaxies have always been. Galaxies always shall be. And they are eternal. And the universe itself is eternal and infinite and is constantly going through the process of birth and rebirth. And maybe there are very, very large things because we look at photons. Photons are not very big. Photons require an accelerating charge particle so that they, they happen. Uh, accelerating charge particle uh, according to Maxwell's equation or we won't have light. We wouldn't exist. And they're of a certain size, and we are able to see them. And a wonderful, wonderful lecture, or essay, actually. It's an essay called On Being the Right Size. I recommend to everyone, look it up in a library somewhere, On Being the Right Size, and read it. And it's very important so we can see things, and why eyeballs have to be the size that they are, according to the photons that are around. But galaxies are electrostatically neutral, Galaxies and the interactions that are happening on the galactic scale and the galactic clusters and so forth. On this scale, we're dealing with gravity waves, which we've just discovered, basically, by a couple of black holes falling into each other. For example, the wavelength of the graviton, if you like, of the gravity wave, from the Earth-Sun system, even though it's an incredibly small amount of energy, it's only about 300 watts, but that gravity wave is one light year in length, obviously. So if we're dealing with interactions in gravity waves on a galactic scale, they're huge. And we're talking about things that are infinite and infinitely large within the structure that we see. And if we think on a scale that is beyond our comprehension, 
there may possibly be a detector that is organized that can actually see on a massive scale the gravity waves that are produced by clusters, galaxies, and so forth. And then there would be, beyond that, infinitely, even greater sizes on, on that scale. Beyond, because the scale between light waves and gravity waves is about 40 orders of magnitude, or maybe 80 mag, uh, orders of magnitude, depending on which way you want to look at it, which solves a certain problems that Dirac was having in, in scalability and numbers and so on. So that we can now look at uh, our universe, which we see. And we see it because we're in an electromagnetic world, where world where there is uh, attraction um, in, in uh, static electricity that makes molecules stick together and makes stuff and material actually stick together in this world, and this is the world in which we live. We're not in a world where we detect gravity waves to any extent at all. We have gravity, um, which very much dominates our world walking around on the surface of the Earth. But we don't see the interactions uh, that happen on a scale so that we can observe gravity waves that well, because gravity waves are huge. They're very, very large. And, any antenna you build has to be at least a quarter wavelength along. The fact that we have managed to detect gravity waves with the LIGO experiment is mind-boggling. What a brilliant move, what a brilliant, brilliant way of seeing it. So we see, in effect, two black holes walking into each other. We see a very, very fast interaction between very, very heavy objects. And we're able to detect it. Uh, that's remarkable. That's truly, truly remarkable. I kind of don't know what to say. I just got back from a hospital. Part of the work I do is that I teach physics and astronomy and uh, mathematics at a, on a native reserve on a uh, east of Calgary here. And uh, yeah, I just got back from the hospital. Uh, um, lovely girl uh, hanged herself and is uh, is in a coma and uh, don't know if she's going to pull through she looks like she will but she's not going to be the same when she comes out and it's an incredibly bright kid she she made a radio telescope for a science project uh, her mom had died when she was 14, just a couple of years earlier. Uh, it's kind of typical of some of the things that you see on a reserve. It, it, uh, it uh, goes with the territory. I haven't had anything like this since I first started teaching about 30 years ago. And uh, it's always devastating called up a couple of people, you know, just to just try and talk to them. Um, some of her family, what's left of her family is there with her at the hospital. Um, sit and talk, I guess. It's very devastating. 
Chapter 16 Roxy's Statement This will actually blow your mind. It did mine. Roxy, of course, as you know by now, is my wife. And it's either that or I'm Roxy's husband. We've had a little disagreement for the past 35 years. A couple can have rather long-standing discussions and disagreements that last their entire lives. This actually is a good thing. Roxy is a professional tap dancer and I'm a mathematician. So we've had to work on this compatibility thing and have a lot of fun doing so. This little discussion is a disagreement over truth. I've been saying that truth is objective, and Roxy says it's subjective. Roxy's study is in the area of social evolution during the late 1700s, as well as an in-depth, lifelong study into First Nations cultures. I also write poetry. Nevertheless, Roxy was saying that if we cannot know the difference between reality and our perception, then who really cares, and that reality is just how we see the world. I'm saying that it makes no difference how we see the universe. Reality is what is. I'm sure you're all familiar with this particular debate. So I continue for 30 years or so in my quest and figure that if ever Roxy agrees with me, then I will truly have something. So I do some math, discover the equation of everything, and see Werner a couple of times. I discuss and talk about it with Cam and figure I have it all worked out. And I want to make an aside here that it looks like Werner is 87 years old now. He is fighting cancer, and it looks like he is moving into uh, something like a hospice or a full care facility. And uh, time goes on. Time goes on. He's the best teacher I've ever had. He's an amazing man, uh, incredibly kind, with remarkable integrity. Nevertheless, I'm... I've got this equation that, you know, I think works everything out. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Pretty proud of myself, anyway. And it so happens during springtime in the Yukon. I'm up in the Yukon and during the spring, and I'm leaving a friend's cabin and walking down a mountainside towards one beautiful, uh, towards town on one beautiful sunny morning. The snow is melting. The sun is up, and I'm lost in contemplation walking through the jack pine. I look at the sun glistening over the mountains in the morning sky, and I visualize the lights coming from the sun being bent through extreme curvatures of space and time, perhaps at the center of our galaxy, and matter being formed just like this rock here beside me. And whoa! Something flew quickly through the edge of my field of view while I was looking at this rock. It was a mosquito. I was startled and looked around. There, again beside me by the rock, was an intricate spider web, glistening in the sunlight, streaming in through the trees. It was a breathtakingly intricate and beautiful. Each dewdrop was distinct, and each fiber of the web reflected light like a beaded string of diamonds. This had been made by a living thing. The mosquito was alive. I stepped back under the weight of the revelation. My God, it's all alive. 
I looked around at the jack pine carefully. The pine needles were not just mineral existence, they were living matter, and all the trees were alive. I listened to the forest. It was filled with the sound of birds and humming insects. The deep, dark green of the nearby pines and gray-black strands of tree trunks contrasted with shining white, melting snowbanks, a stunning portrait. The planet, this small segment of the universe, was teeming with life. How the hell was I going to explain life in the unified field theory? Like, I know the biology is only for kids who can't do physics, but this time the bio students had the upper hand. I also know that I can traverse a line of logic and rational thought all the way from a measure of distance in time to the complex world of chemistry and crystallography. And I know you can add sparks and electric stimulation to chemicals and get amino acids. I know you make RNA and DNA in a test tube. I've seen it done. No, you can't make DNA, but you can make RNA in a test tube. seen it done. I also know you can shake, rattle, and roll a test tube of chemicals all you'd like and wait forever and a day, and you will never, ever, ever make a mosquito. Life is a barrier in the line of logic from mathematics to outward reality. Life, biology, is a river we can only cross on a bridge of faith. Okay, we're alive. This is life. How the hell did we get here? Needless to say, I was devastated. I no longer felt pride in any of my mathematical or physical accomplishments, or physics accomplishments. It was all for nothing. There was no way I could contemplate the theory. The universe had been on my side through oh, this derivation, but life itself had delivered the fatal coup. I didn't give up, but I knew I was defeated. And a few months later, I looked at dark matter. Actually, I looked at a digital photo of NGC 3198. I transformed the pixels of a digital photo of NGC 3198 so that the galaxy would be portrayed as seen from directly above. Then I used a negative of the transformed photo, black on white. I printed this digital photo out. It was obviously a spiral, I knew that. I also knew it was a straight line. I took the picture into the living room and sat on the couch by Roxy and showed her the photo. Now, hi, I said. You'll never guess what this is. Looks like a galaxy, she said. Yes, I said, but I know something that no one else in the world knows. This galaxy looks like a spiral, but it is actually a straight line. What do you mean, a straight line, she said. The galaxy is rotating, I said. It's very large. Gravity travels at the speed, same speed as the speed of light. By the time the gravitational influence has gone from the center of the galaxy to the outer parts, a galaxy rotates and ends up looking like a spiral. But it's really a straight line. I don't see that at all, she said. How can a spiral be a straight line? Remember in New Zealand, I said? Remember when we were way away from everywhere in Tawananui on the rugby field in the dark at night? Yes, she said. Remember the center of the galaxy and what it looked like? Remember the optical illusion that it is really just a cylinder filled with stars and goes straight into the center of the galaxy and out the other side. That it is all just a straight cylinder of, scar of stars, I said. Roxy looked confused. I continue, this is just a spiral. 
If I can figure out the equation of the spiral, it will be one of the greatest discoveries in all science. It will completely change our understanding of the universe and physics itself. Can you do that, she asked. Yes, I said, but it will take a little time. How much time, she asked. A couple of weeks, I said. Well, what the hell are you doing sitting here on the couch, she demanded. Get back in there and get the formula. So I did. And Cam, my son, got very excited. and We had this formula, and I was busy measuring the distances to galaxies. and It was all very much fun, except for Roxy. I walked into my office one morning to find Roxy staring at the computer displaying the transformed photo of NGC 3198. She was in tears. I don't get it, she said. You and Cam say it's all so simple, and I don't get it. How can this be a straight line? How is it a spiral? I didn't know what to say or do. Don't try so hard, I ventured. It's, it's not so difficult as subtle. Just try to let the ideas come to you rather than forcing yourself to understand it. It's, it's okay. She was still very frustrated. I walked quietly out of my office, leaving her to rather frustrated thoughts. And the next day, I was cleaning up in the kitchen when Roxy, Roxy walked in and asked, Do you mean to tell me that we have all these really intelligent and important scientists who are studying astronomy, looking through telescopes, and they study this stuff? You mean to tell me, I mean, they are looking at the same galaxy I have looked at, and they haven't taken into account that the stars they're looking at have moved by the time they're seeing them. Uh, I, I don't know, I said, if ever I get the chance, I'll ask them. You've got to be kidding, she said. Even I know that. Those stars are thousands of light years away. I knew that as a child. They haven't figured out the stars are no longer where they're looking at them. I don't believe that. And she stormed out of the kitchen. The next day, Roxy came up to me in the hallway. I get it, she said forcefully. I get it. I get what you have been talking about all these years. The mathematics isn't the result of the physics and what we're looking at. The physics is the result of the mathematics. It's so obvious. This bookshelf, she exclaimed, hitting the bookshelf, standing beside me. This bookshelf is a bookshelf because it follows the mathematics of a bookshelf. Don't come along and see the bookshelf and then go and make up a mathematics of bookshelves. The mathematics determines the physics. The physics does not determine the mathematics. I get it. I said to her that she had discovered the pinnacle of mathematical physics and theoretical physics. You have now reached the place where I am, I said. That is the height of my mathematical insight, and I cannot go any further. If you stick to remember what you have just discovered, no one can argue scientifically against you. You have the key to it all. She's confident with an air of anger at the world of academia. And then I told her about biology. I told her about being in the Yukon, and I could not complete the theory. However, we did have a great deal of it covered, but there was no way I could include biology or life in the theory of everything. A few days later, Roxy and I went for an evening walk. It was one of those rare days in Calgary when it's not snowing and it's reasonably warm. There were blossoms on the trees. It was nice. After walking for a while, Roxy started talking. I noticed she began that there is order in the universe. 
we look at the smallest things like atoms and protons and electrons, there are rules that tell us what they do, how they behave. We have quarks, and they have rules on how they behave. And even smaller than that, what makes up quarks, and so on, and so on. Things get infinitely smaller and smaller without end. And each world smaller and smaller, no matter how much we search, there will always be rules that govern them. There is always order, she continued. Nothing is chaotic. Nothing is random. There are laws that govern the world of the quantum, the world of the atoms. And there are rules of chemistry. It is not chaotic. There is order in chemistry and in physics. And if we look at a blade of grass, she said, stopping on the sidewalk to point to a lawn beside us. There is order describing the structure of the blade of grass and even how it grows. It may be very complicated, and we may not understand it, but that does not matter. There is order in the way a blade of grass grows because that's what makes it a blade of grass. Also, she went on pointing out a bough of apple, pointing out a bough of apple blossoms just overhead. There is order in the growth of a tree, in its leaves and branches and its roots. It's not just growing randomly. There's an order to it. And the sun and the planet, she said as we looked up at the evening sky. There is order in how the earth rotates and goes around the sun, in the behavior of earthquakes and the weather and the ecology. We may not understand it, but there is still order to it all. Nothing is chaotic. Nothing is random. The way the solar system is, the planets going around the sun, the way the sun and stars go around the galaxy, there is order to it. It is all ordered. And how all the galaxies are, and the clusters, and the superclusters of galaxies. And however they are, and even bigger than that, to an infinitely large structure of never-ending structures containing structures. It is worlds within worlds, infinitely large and infinitesimally small. And throughout it all, there is order. Nothing is chaotic. And she said, stopping to face me, if you are going to make a bookshelf or a building... You have to have some plan in order to build it. If you just take mud and sticks and try to make a building without some plan, the building will not stand. It will have no structure. It will collapse. It won't be a building. If there is order to everything, then there has to be a plan. There has to be a blueprint for everything to exist, for it to have order. Therefore, she said to me, since there is order throughout the universe, the universe has to have a blueprint. And the blueprint of the universe is mathematics. And you, my love, have discovered a very small piece of the blueprint. This thing with galaxies is just a small part of the blueprint. And because you have uncovered some small part of the blueprint, you can see, not completely and only a very small bit, but nevertheless, you can see how everything works. That's why you can see it and no one else can. You have discovered a small part of the blueprint of the universe. I have been speechless ever since. The universe has a blueprint. The blueprint of the universe is mathematics. The universe is order and nothing is chaotic. In viewing reality, there is no probability of outcomes. And so we have a response to the Copenhagen interpretation. And I, nearing the end of my life, know why I married Roxy.
Thanks for listening, everybody. If you liked what you heard, you may subscribe in your podcast provider and perhaps share in various social media sites. Bruce has promised he won't change the links anymore and screw up trying to find the next episode. Please enjoy the rest of your day and may everything work out for the best. We try to have a new podcast every Saturday, so see you next week.